Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. There are some cases that are just so depraved, there aren't enough words in the world to convey the absolute cruelty and depravity that could be so callously used against an innocent human being, such as the victims of the killers we will tackle today. The monsters in question never once showed remorse for their actions. They recorded the torture and murders of many of their victims. And today, those recordings are used to desensitize FBI agents against what they may have to deal with in the field. The killers in question were two men who found a shared interest in depraved acts while they were incarcerated together for sex crimes in California. That friendship would lead to a partnership that seemed to come straight out of the flames of hell. They fed into one another's depravity and inhumanity that many people can't fathom. Feeding off of one another's darkness, like mosquitoes drawing blood from their victims. They were the real boogeyman back in 1979, hiding in the shadows, lurking and waiting for their next unsuspecting victim. Their van was their lair, a place where they could do the unspeakable. The only sounds emitting from the back of the vehicle were the screams of their innocent victims and the sounds of their toolbox once more being opened. The two men in question, you ask? Why, they were Lawrence Bittaker and Ray Norris, two hardened criminals and sadistic rapists who would go on to rape, murder, and torture five young women over the course of a summer of hell in California in 1979. This is the Toolbox Murders. I just want to say I'm really excited to be back. I know it's been a while since I've put anything out. We'll get back into the swing of things. A couple announcements. Addicted is going to its own show. I will link to it down below. It'll be on its own feed. That way you get the true crime content here on the jury room and discuss the other heavy topics over on Addicted. I'm really excited where that series is going and the reception that it's been. I'm stoked. I have a couple of other cases that I've been working on that I'm really excited about. I have one with a with family involved. I've got a couple of other fires, you know, a couple of other irons in the fire. I'm really excited and I'm really excited to be back. Don't forget to go subscribe to Addicted. Don't forget to subscribe to the jury room. Leave your reviews. Just know I've missed you guys. I'm really excited to be back. Thank you for listening while I was not here. With that in mind, today's episode does contain graphic discussions of sexual assault, sodomy, torture, and murder. Listener discretion is heavily advised. I won't be offended if you turn this one off. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. It all began with the birth of a monster. On September 27, 1940, Lawrence Bittaker would enter the world with the wails of any newborn child. He was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But for the man and woman to whom he genetically bore a relationship, his birth was not celebrated. The couple had chosen long before to not have children, and Lawrence Bittaker was an unwanted child. His birth did not change the couple's minds about raising a family. As an infant, Lawrence Bittaker would be put up for adoption and placed into an orphanage by his birth mother, allowing for the infant to be adopted out to a couple who did want to have children, that of Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker. 
Lawrence Bittaker's adopted father, George, worked in the aviation industry. His job required the family to travel throughout those first formative years for Lawrence. The family would move all over the United States, never putting down roots for long in any one place. While most 12-year-olds were riding their bikes across town, going to the local movie theaters and watching a scary movie for a nickel, or hanging out at the local pharmacy to grab a milkshake, Lawrence Bittaker was actually beginning his life of crime and sadism. It began with petty crimes for Bittaker, who liked to go and perpetrate small thefts throughout the town. According to Bittaker later in interviews, the reasons for the thefts were simple. He was compensating for the lack of love he received from his parents. According to Lawrence, he didn't receive the attention he desperately wanted from his adoptive parents. And so, he sought out a life of crime at a young age. While seeking out a life of crime came early to Lawrence, he wasn't anyone's fool. He may have been young, but his IQ was supposedly tested at somewhere around 138. This would put his intelligence level in the above average range and near the beginnings of what is considered to be genius level intelligence, which is 145 or above. While he may have had a high intelligence score, he thought education was tedious and boring, a road that he didn't want to pursue further. And so he chose to drop out of high school in 1957 at 17 years old. The Bittaker family had moved to California around this time. It was after dropping out of high school that Lawrence's elusive dance with criminal activities would fully take bloom. The year after he dropped out of high school, he would be arrested for stealing a car. After having stolen the vehicle, he then perpetrated a hit and run, as well as went on the run from the police. He would eventually be arrested that year and sent to the California Youth Authority. As Bittaker wasn't even 18 yet, he was sentenced as a juvenile and was required to stay at the youth detention center until he turned 18 years old. Perhaps realizing that Lawrence Bittaker wasn't going to change his ways, Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker would decide that they could no longer handle Lawrence in their lives. So the couple disowned their adoptive child. The couple would take it so far as to move to another state far away from Lawrence. Lawrence would never see his adoptive parents again after they disowned him. Lawrence Bittaker was finally alone in the world. A life of crime and sadism, his only family now. That was until he met up with the likes of Ray Norris. Eight years after the birth of Lawrence Bittaker, another monster would be born, that of Ray Lewis Norris. Norris was born in Greeley, Colorado on February 5th, 1948, to parents who were not initially married. Ray Norris's parents would decide to get married, not wanting to draw attention to the fact that they had conceived a child out of wedlock, which held a certain social stigma at the time of his birth. Ray Norris's childhood was not a happy or stable one. His mother struggled with drug addiction and his father worked long hours in the scrapyard. Norris would frequently be placed into foster care throughout his childhood and up into his teenage years. As his biological parents weren't equipped to handle raising him throughout much of his life, he would often find himself in the care of foster families throughout the state of Colorado, never really staying at one home long enough to put down roots. He would also later accuse many of the foster families of neglect, physical, and sexual abuse. While in the care of a Hispanic foster family, Norris would state that he was sexually abused. That abuse would be the reasoning he gave for his prejudice and hatred of Hispanic people creating a lifelong bias against people of Hispanic origins. Ray Norris would frequently return back to his birth parents throughout his teenage years. When he was 16, 
Norris began to exhibit signs of sexual aggression and a desire to assault women. One day when he was 16, Ray Norris would go visit one of his female relatives' homes. The family member was young, in her early 20s. While there, Ray Norris would begin to verbally suggest sexual acts to his family member. He began to make her uncomfortable with the sexual suggestiveness of his statements, and so she would order Ray Norris out of her home. She would then go on to confront Ray Norris's father about the incident and how Ray had made her feel uncomfortable and unsafe. Ray Norris's father didn't report his son to authorities. He did, however, threaten Roy that if he didn't stop his behavior, he would beat the teenager. In retaliation, Ray Norris stole his father's car and drove off with it. After stealing the car, the 16-year-old drove up into the Rocky Mountains, where he planned to take his own life by injecting pure air into one of the arteries in his arm. His attempt was thwarted, however, as his father had reported the teen as a runaway, and so he would be apprehended by police before he could finish the act of suicide. Norris was sent back to his biological family's home after this incident. Things did not improve in Ray Norris's home life after his attempt on his own life. When he returned to his biological family's home, his parents informed both him and his younger sister that they didn't want them anymore and that the couple planned to divorce. Not having much of a plan for his life, Ray Norris would go on to drop out of high school the following year, deciding to join the U.S. Navy instead of completing his education. He served one tour in Vietnam in 1969 for roughly four of the five months and then upon his return to the U.S. he would be honorably discharged from the Navy that year. While Ray Norris was just a kid in 1959, Lawrence Bittaker had reached near adulthood. That year he was released from the California Youth Authority. However, within just a few days of his parole, Bittaker decided to transport some stolen cars across state lines. That decision would cost him his temporary freedom, and Bittaker would be sentenced to 18 months in prison for his actions. His sentence was to take place at the Oklahoma State Reformatory. He then received a transfer over to Springfield, Missouri to finish his sentence. 1960 would grant Bittaker his release from prison. However, the young man had learned nothing from his incarceration and within weeks was back to perpetrating petty crimes once more. He had made his way back to California, and while in Los Angeles, he found himself once being arrested, this time for robbery. And so in May of 1961, Lawrence Bittaker was once more sentenced to prison. This time, he wouldn't get off as light as he had before. Now that Bittaker was a repeat offender, his sentence for the robberies was for 15 years this time. While in prison, a psychiatrist would assess Lawrence Bittaker. He determined that Bittaker was having considerable concealed hostility, which the psychiatrist determined was from Bittaker's highly manipulative personality. Bittaker was determined to get what he wanted when he wanted it, and he did not care who he hurt in order to obtain his dark desire. Lawrence Bittaker would eventually be released on parole in 1963 after completing only two years of his 15-year prison sentence. As that had become Whitaker's norm though, his freedom would be fleeting as he was once again imprisoned for parole violations in 1964 and he would be returned back to prison once more. In 1966, more examinations were requested into the mental health of Lawrence Bittaker. Two independent psychiatrists would both classify Bittaker as a borderline psychopath and a highly manipulative individual 
unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions, Bideker gained a feeling of notoriety and importance from his crimes even early on. He had an ego and viewed his crimes as a means of self-importance. Bideker would also argue that his childhood was also partially responsible for his descent into a criminal lifestyle. As a means to try and rehabilitate the criminal, Bideker would be prescribed a series of antipsychotic medications. Then after a year, Lawrence Bideker was released into an unsuspecting population once more. Within one month of his release from prison, Lawrence Bideker would once again find himself being arrested and convicted of theft and for leaving the scene of an accident. This time, Bideker was sentenced to five years, but he would only serve three years of that term and be released once more in April of 1970. Lawrence Bideker wouldn't be away from prison long, however. In March 1971, he would be arrested for burglary and theft. Bideker had violated his own parole on so many occasions over the years that this time he was sentenced to serve between 6 months to 15 years in prison. However, once again, Lawrence Bideker would be released despite a constant barrage of parole violations and his career criminal status. This time, he had only served 3 years for that crime and violation of his parole. A newly released Lawrence Bideker would be arrested for assault with the attempt to commit murder in 1974. A young employee from the local supermarket, Gary Louie, saw Lawrence Bideker stealing one afternoon from the grocery store. The employee followed Bideker out into the parking lot, and that is where he confronted Lawrence. Lawrence would take a knife and stab the young employee in the chest barely missing the young man's heart. Bideker was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon for the stabbing, as Gary Louie had survived the attack. The attack would get Lawrence Bideker a stint at the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. Not to be outdone by Lawrence Bideker's growing rap sheet, Ray Norris was also beginning his own criminal career. By November 1969, Norris would be arrested for his first sexual offense when he was charged with rape and assault with the attempt to commit rape. One evening, Ray Norris attempted to force himself into a car with a lone female driver. A few months after this, Ray Norris would also try to get a woman who was alone in her home to let him into her house. The woman refused to allow Ray Norris entry and so he then attempted to break into her home, causing the woman to call the police in fear. Luckily for the woman, police arrived on the scene immediately and were able to apprehend Ray Norris before he was able to physically harm anyone in the home. Due to the arrest, Norris would undergo testing via military psychologist. While in the Navy, he would come out with a diagnosis of having severe schizoid personality disorder. Because of his recent diagnosis, the Navy would give Ray Norris an administrative discharge due to his being labeled as having had psychological problems. May of 1970 would see Ray Norris out on bail after he attacked a female student at the San Diego State University campus. Norris had been stalking the woman, where once he had her in his sights, he sprung on the woman, striking her repeatedly on the back of the head with a rock he had clutched in his hand. Then he knelt on the young woman's back and proceeded to bash her head against the campus sidewalk. Norris would be charged with assault with a deadly weapon for the attack on the college student. He was sentenced to five years at the Atascadero State Hospital. Once there, he underwent yet another assessment and would be classified as being a mentally disordered sex offender. After serving five years at the Atascadero State Hospital, Norris would be released in 1975 and assigned to have five years of probation 
as doctors stated that Ray Norris was a man who was no further danger to others. The fuck? Three months later, Ray Norris would once more go on the prowl, looking for a victim. Ray Norris would find a 27-year-old woman who was walking home alone from a restaurant in Redondo Beach, California. He would offer the young woman a ride on his motorcycle, and when she declined, he proceeded to snatch the woman's scarf she was wearing and twisted it around her neck, incapacitating her. Then he told the young woman his intentions were to rape her. He then drug her into nearby bushes where he sexually assaulted the 27-year-old woman. The woman would survive the attack and report the assault and the license plate of her attacker to authorities, but it would take police nearly a year to find the owner of the motorcycle for which the young woman had been able to identify the license plate from. Norris would finally be arrested for the sexual assault, where he would also be sent to the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, where he would eventually meet and strike up an alliance with Lawrence Bittaker. It would take about one year after Ray Norris arrived at San Luis Obispo before he and Lawrence Bittaker would become associated with one another. They met through mutual prison acquaintances and would eventually strike up a friendship of sorts after Ray Norris taught Lawrence Bittaker how to make jewelry. In exchange, Lawrence Bittaker kept Ray Norris from being attacked by other inmates on two separate occasions, cementing the pair's friendship and future deviant crimes. After the two struck up a friendship of sorts, they began to confide in one another their growing need for sexual violence and Ray Norris would confide in Bittaker that he was sexually aroused by the fear that he saw in young women for whom he attacked. The two would discuss sexually violent acts between themselves, leading Lawrence Bittaker to mention to Ray Norris that if he, Bittaker, were to commit those same crimes, he would kill his victim so that they couldn't be a witness against him in the future. It was with this statement and these discussions that a friendship out of hell was built. The two men would discuss at length plans to abduct and sexually assault, rape, and then murder teenage girls. They would fantasize about how they would take the women, how each teenage woman would be attacked, and how once they were released from prison, they could meet up and actually facilitate their sick fantasies into a reality by committing the crimes together. They made a deal to meet up once they were both released from prison, so as to fulfill their sickening schemes. Before we continue with the case of these two sadistic rapists and murderers, I would like to pause for a moment and let us have a moment of silence for the victims of these two heinous men. They will not be forgotten. Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, age 16. Andrea Joy Hall, age 18. Jackie Doris Gillum, age 15. Jacqueline Lee Lamp, age 13. And Shirley Lynette Ledford, age 16. October of 1978 would bring the release of Lawrence Bittaker from the California men's colony. He would choose to go back to Los Angeles, finding work as a machinist. Bittaker was making very good money for the time at roughly $1,000 a week, and even went so far to make friends with some of his neighbors who considered Lawrence to have a local reputation of being helpful and generous as he donated money to the Salvation Army. What the people in Lawrence Bittaker's neighborhood didn't know is that below the surface of his superficial smile and his kindly donations to those in need lurked a truly horrific nightmare of a soul. 
it wasn't surprising to find out that Lawrence Bittaker was also fairly popular with the neighborhood teens in his area. Bittaker was known to always have beer and marijuana on hand in his motel and the teens would all come over to drink, smoke marijuana, and hang out with the likes of Lawrence Bittaker. It seemed that Lawrence Bittaker had begun to make a life for himself while he waited for Ray Norris to be released. He wouldn't have to wait long. In January of 1979, Ray Norris would be released from prison, moving in with his mother in her Redondo Beach home. With his previous history of sexual assault and attempted rapes, it isn't surprising that it was within one month of his release when he once more raped a woman he had picked up. He left her abandoned in the desert. Ray Norris found work as an electrician, and in no time at all, he was reconnected with Lawrence Bittaker after receiving a letter from his former prison friend in the mail. The two men agreed to meet up and began to bring their deranged fantasies into fruition. In late February, Bittaker and Norris were once more reunited and began their new friendship by planning the kidnapping and rape of young women and girls. Bittaker and Norris realized they would need a vehicle in order to perpetrate their planned crimes. They agreed that the vehicle of choice should be a van, and after looking around, they settled on a GMC Vandura which was a large van of the types that are often used for deliveries. The reason they chose the van was not a matter of costs, but because the pair decided that the van would allow them to easily drive up to young women and then they could just slide the van door open just enough to pull a person through and then easily slide the door shut to trap their victim within the constraints of the large metal vehicle Unsurprising, the two sadists would name the van Murder Mac in honor of what they planned the van to be an accomplice to. The van would become an accessory into some of the most brutal and inhumane acts to ever be perpetrated on another human being. Bittaker and Norris would decide to do several practice runs before committing to their psychotic dreams. The pair would take the van, Murder Mac, out and look for female hitchhikers in their teens. The two men didn't sexually assault or murder the women. Instead, they were testing their plan and looking for any possible issues that could arise within it. On one of these evenings in late April of 1979, Bittaker and Norris would come across the road that would lead to Fire Road. It was isolated and secluded. Everything the two men could want in a location set away from the public and hidden within the San Gabriel Mountains. When the two drove up to the road, they found a locked gate. Lawrence Whitaker got out of the van and proceeded to break open the lock that was hooked around the gate. Once the lock was off the gate, Lawrence Bittaker swapped it out for one of his own locks, allowing for the pair to have full control of that secluded area and who could and could not enter it. Bittaker and Norris would build a bed into the back of the van. They would also fill a cooler with beer and sodas, and they would also stash a box of tools in the back of the van. The two were preparing to bring their sick twisted fantasies into reality. It was on June 24th of 1979 when Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris would take the life of their first victim, Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, a 16-year-old teenager who was leaving a church meeting. Ray Norris was the first of the men to set his eyes on the young Lucinda. He even remarked to Bittaker, there's a cute little blonde. Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker drove their van alongside Lucinda Schaefer. They offered her weed, then they offered to give her a lift home. Lucinda turned down their offers, attempting to continue walking ahead away from the men trying to lure her into their van. 
realizing that they weren't going to be able to coax Lucinda into the van. The men drove up ahead of the 16-year-old. Then they parked the van near a driveway. The men exited the van and opened its sliding door. Then Ray Norris leaned his body into the depths of the van. The upper part of his body looking to be inside the van. When Lucinda passed the van, Ray Norris snatched the 16-year-old, dragging her into the back of the van. Lawrence Whitaker would then reach and turn the knob of the radio on full blast so that no one would be able to hear any screams from Lucinda from the back of the van. With the music blaring throughout the van, Ray Norris would tie 16-year-old Lucinda up and he would cover her mouth with duct tape. Lawrence Bittaker drove the van to the Lone Road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Lucinda Schaefer was a strong young woman, as according to Lawrence Bittaker, Lucinda displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. Lawrence Whitaker and Ray Norris would take the young Lucinda Schaefer up to Fire Road, where they had changed the padlocks on the road's gate. Then both Norris and Bittaker would repeatedly rape the 16-year-old girl. At some points during the attacks, Lucinda asked Ray Norris if they were going to kill her. Norris lied to the young woman and told her no. Lucinda's response to Ray Norris was to ask to be given enough time to pray before the men killed her. Ray Norris would then go on to attempt to strangle Lucinda Schaefer to death. Within seconds though, Ray Norris found that he couldn't handle the look in her eyes. And so, he stopped choking the young woman and ran to the front of Murder Mac and proceeded to vomit. Lawrence Whitaker would continue where Ray Norris left off, however. He would manually strangle Lucinda until she began to convulse. Then Bittaker took a wire coat hanger and twisted it around the 16-year-old girl's neck until her convulsions ceased and she was deceased. The men didn't let Lucinda Schaefer pray one last time before she was brutally murdered at their hands. The men would wrap Lucinda's body up in a plastic shower curtain and throw her remains over a canyon they had chosen. Her remains were never found. It would only be two weeks after Bittaker and Norris brutally murdered 16-year-old Lucinda Schaefer before the pair would come across their next victim, 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall. Andrea was hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway when Bittaker and Norris spotted the 18-year-old with her thumb out. Realizing that she was a prime target, the two men slowed their murder vehicle down to a crawl in order to offer the woman a ride, but they were beat to it by another vehicle that offered Andrea a lift before the two men could. Instead, Bittaker and Norris decided to follow the vehicle and its young hitchhiker to the next destination. Sure enough, the vehicle would pull over in Rondondo Beach, where Andrea Joy Hall would vacate that vehicle, leaving her unknowingly at the mercy of the two murderous souls, quietly trailing her that whole duration of the ride. Ray Norris would take to the back of the van, hiding so that Andrea Hall thought it was just Lawrence Bittaker in the van, making the whole thing less alarming for the young hitchhiker. Bittaker and Norris were the perfect predators. They understood just how the women they saw as prey would react and how to put them more at ease. Their plan worked, and Andrea Joy Hall got in the front passenger seat of the van next to Lawrence Bittaker never realizing until it was too late that Ray Norris was lurking in the back of the commercial van, waiting for the perfect opportunity to pounce on the young woman. Lawrence Whitaker would kindly ask Andrea if she wanted a drink 
from his cooler in the back of the van. The young hitchhiker took him up on his kindness and went towards the back of the van. All the while, Ray Norris waited patiently for his prey to come to him. As soon as Andrea Hall made her way towards the rear of the van, Ray Norris would snake his arms out to try and restrain the 18-year-old girl. Andrea put up one hell of a fight, however, and didn't make it easy on Norris or Bittaker. It would take Ray Norris twisting her arm behind her back before Andrea was able to be restrained by the men. They then gagged her with tape and bound her wrists and ankles so that she couldn't fight them anymore. Once they had Andrea Hall bound, the men would drive her up to the same road where they abducted, tortured, raped, and murdered 16-year-old Lucinda Schaefer. Once they arrived at the San Gabriel Mountains location, Bittaker and Norris would once more sexually assault the young woman. Lawrence Bittaker assaulting her twice and Roy Norris assaulting her once. At one point during the attack, Ray Norris thought he saw headlights approaching, so in a moment of panic, he had Lawrence Bittaker drag Andrea Hall into the nearby bushes, and Norris would hop into the driver's seats of Murder Mac and drive around looking for the vehicle he thought he had seen. He wasn't able to find the vehicle, however, and so he returned to the scene of the attack and both he and Lawrence Bittaker would drag Andrea Joy Hall further into the remote road in the mountains. The men would then force Andrea to walk uphill, her clothes removed and her body bruised. The young woman would walk further into the mountains, naked. Once the men felt they were safely away from any prying eyes, Lawrence Bittaker forced Andrea Hall to perform oral sex on him. He then proceeded to make the young nude woman pose so that he could take a series of Polaroid photos of her. Lawrence Bittaker and Ray Norris decided that they needed to go to yet another location with Andrea Norris. Once more, Andrea Hall was forced to walk up a hill that was nearby to where she had been savagely attacked. Then, Ray Norris would leave once more so he could go buy the men alcohol. Lawrence Bittaker was left alone with Andrea Joy Hall. He would take two more Polaroids. That would show the pure fear that Andrea Joy Hall must have felt. While Norris was gone, Bittaker would tell Andrea to give him as many reasons as she could for why he shouldn't kill her. As Andrea gave reason after reason for her life, for why her life should be spared, Lawrence Bittaker would take an ice pick and shove it through the 18-year-old girl's ear. The pick would then penetrate Andrea Joy Hall's brain. Not content to leave the attack as it was on the girl, Bittaker then turned over the dying woman's body and thrust the ice pick through her other ear and straight into her brain on that side of her body. He would stomp on the end of the pick repeatedly, so hard that the handle of the ice pick actually broke off. He then strangled the young woman for several minutes to assure himself that she was indeed deceased. He would then dispose of her body off the side of a nearby cliff. Andrea Joy Hall's remains have also never been found. A few months would pass since the rape and murder of Andrea Joy Hall. September 3rd, however, would once more see Lawrence Bittaker and Ray Norris on the prowl again, looking for a victim behind the bloodthirsty grill of Murder Mac. The men would spot two young girls sitting on a bus stop bench. Like Andrea Hall, the girls 13-year-old Jacqueline Lee Lamb and 15-year-old Jackie Doris Gillum were hitchhikers and had been traveling up the coast of California before their travels would place them in the crosshairs of two bloodthirsty criminals. Lawrence and Roy would pull their van up alongside of where the two teenage girls were sitting. Then they offered them a ride and the girls accepted the lift, unknowingly stepping into the hands of two broken and sadistic men. The men offered Jackie and Jacqueline marijuana, which the girls accepted. 
Initially, they weren't concerned with the direction the van was heading, but then Lawrence Bittaker began to steer the van into the direction of the San Gabriel Mountains. Immediately, alarm bells went off in both girls' minds, and 13-year-old Jacqueline would attempt to open the van's sliding passenger door. But before she could successfully escape, Roy Norris hit the 13-year-old with a bag that had been filled with lead weights, knocking the young girl unconscious. Once Jacqueline was subdued, Ray Norris would grab 15-year-old Jackie Gillum, gagging the teen and binding her, much as he had Andrea Hall and Lucinda Schaefer just a few months previously. Within minutes of being knocked out, Jacqueline Lamp began to come to. Once more, the 13-year-old girl attempted to escape the van, but Norris twisted the young teen's arm behind her back, forcing her back into the van. Lawrence Bittaker would begin to realize that Ray Norris was having trouble controlling both young girls, so he would then punch Jackie in the face and help Ray Norris finish binding and gagging both teens. The men drove both Jackie and Jacqueline up to their hideout in the San Gabriel Mountains, as they had with their previous victims. Roy and Lawrence would hold the two teenage girls captive for nearly two days. The entire time, the men repeatedly sexually assaulted the two teenage girls, as well as physically abused the teens. The men would take turns posing the teens, as well as themselves, for Polaroids of pornographic photos. They tortured the two girls over the course of those two days. At one point, Lawrence Bittaker recorded the rape and torture of Jackie Gillum. During the attack, he stabbed her breasts with an ice pick and would use vice grip pliers in which he would attack her so viciously that he had ripped half of one of her nipples off. Fuck. In a rare moment of empathy, rare in a rare moment of empathy, Roy Norris claimed that he had discussed with Lawrence the idea of killing Jackie Gillum quickly, as she had been a fairly cooperative captive. Unlike 13-year-old Jacqueline Lamp, who had fought the men off repeatedly since the girl's abduction. According to Norris, while testifying at Lawrence Bittaker's trial, Lawrence Bittaker had replied with, No, they only die once anyway. Then he proceeded to murder Jackie Gillum in the same manner as he had Andrea Hall just two months before, by shoving an ice pick through the 15-year-old's ear on each side and then strangling her to death. The men would then force 13-year-old Jacqueline Lamp out of the van, where Ray Norris would then strike the young girl with a sledgehammer to her head. Lawrence Bittaker would once again wrap his murderous hands around the young girl's throat, attempting to strangle the teen to death. At one point, Jacqueline Lamp, still fighting the men even with her dying breaths, would open her eyes one final time, realizing the 13-year-old girl was still alive. Roy Norris would bludgeon Jacqueline, all while Lawrence Bittaker kept his pressure on the young girl's neck, strangling her. In time, Jacqueline Lamp would die from the lack of oxygen and the repeated bludgeoning. Norris and Bittaker would then throw both hers and Jackie Gillum's bodies off the side of an embankment. Their bodies were recovered and returned to their families. The Toolbox Killer's final victim would be Shirley Lynette Ledford, a 16-year-old girl who would be abducted by the pair of rapists and murderers on October 31st, 1979. Like the others before her, Lynette was hitchhiking from a party outside of Los Angeles. Police thought that the reason that Lynette Ledford got into the van was because she recognized Lawrence Bittaker as one of her regular customers at a restaurant that she worked at as a waitress. The men offered Lynette marijuana as they had their other victims, but Lynette refused the offer. The men would then drive the van to a street nearby that was relatively empty. 
there, Ray Norris would pull a knife on Lynette Ledford, forcing her at knife point to allow the men to bind and gag her. Ray Norris would then get behind the wheel, trading places with Lawrence Bittaker. Bittaker would begin the torture and sexual assault of 16-year-old Lynette Ledford by slapping the teenage girl and repeatedly hitting her with his fists. He would then shout at the young girl to say something, and this would make Lawrence shout at Lynette to scream louder. Lawrence Bittaker would then repeatedly strike the young girl, all the while asking her, What's the matter? Don't you like to scream? Then he would continue striking Lynette Ledford with a hammer as the 16-year-old girl screamed. At some point during the attack, Lawrence Bittaker would begin to record the rape and torture of the 16-year-old. Lynette would plead with Lawrence, begging him not to touch her, all the while, he beat her with a hammer and hit her breasts with his fists. He would then take his pliers out of his toolbox and use them on the young teenager as he raped and sodomized Lynette Ledford. The entire time, the tape would roll on recording the screams of a 16-year-old girl who was brutally attacked over and over again. Lawrence Whitaker would eventually swap out with Roy Norris. Once Norris was in the back of the van, he would make sure to have the tape recording the entire attack. Ray Norris would go so far as to take his hammer and hit Lynette's elbow so hard with the hammer that he broke her elbow. Not content with just that, he would continue to bash her elbow over and over again. The entire time, he would shout at the teenage girl to go ahead and scream, or I'll make you scream. Lynette Ledford would begin to plead for her life, telling Roy Norris that she would scream if you stop hitting. Norris would smash Lynette Ledford's elbow with the sledgehammer 25 more times, all the while recording the screams of the teenage victim. Ray Norris would then proceed to strangle Lynette Ledford after two more hours of torture and sexual assault and abuse. He would take a wire coat hanger and wrap the metal rod around Lynette's neck, all the while tightening the coat hanger with the pliers he had used earlier to torture Lynette Ledford with. The men left 16-year-old Lynette's remains on a nearby lawn in order to get attention from the cops and the press, discarding her body as if it was garbage. They felt no remorse for their actions. Her remains would be found the next day by a jogger who spotted her body lying in a bed of ivy on the neighbor's lawn. Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker would go back to their day-to-day -day lives as if nothing had happened. That was until one of the men began to talk. Ray Norris would be the weak link in the duo's murder spree. He would brag to a friend of his about the murders going into graphic detail of what they had done to their victims. That friend would immediately contact police, telling them that the two men had been doing over the last five months in 1979. Police would then arrest both Lawrence Bittaker and Ray Norris. Initially, it was Ray Norris who was placed under surveillance after his friend went to the police about the acts he had claimed to do and the ones he was planning to commit. Police apprehended him after their surveillance was complete. While Ray Norris was being arrested, Lawrence Bittaker attempted to call Norris. It was at this point that Lawrence Bittaker realized that if Norris was currently being arrested, then the police would soon be on his doorstep to arrest him as well. This realization would lead to Lawrence Bittaker beginning to destroy the incriminating evidence that both he and Roy Norris had accumulated over the last five months. Specifically, photos were destroyed, as well as other audio recordings. However, Bittaker was unsuccessful in destroying or burying all evidence as police would find graphic photos of several of his and Ray Norris's victims. 
Ray Norris began talking not long after he was arrested. He would go on to confess to the police the entirety of both his and Lawrence's crimes. However, he would go on to insist to investigators that he was merely a follower and that it had been Lawrence who had been the leader of the sadistic sexual assaults and murders of all five women. Ray Norris would take a plea deal in exchange for his testimony against Lawrence Bittaker. He would plead guilty to five counts of murder and two counts of forcible rape and robbery. Norris did not receive the death penalty, however, and instead, he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. He would die of natural causes in 2020, having served 41 years of his sentence before his death. Norris's testimony would also help to seal Lawrence Bittaker's fate. Investigators found the recording of Lynette Ledford's torture, rape, and subsequent murder. They would also find many of the Polaroids taken by Lawrence Bittaker and Ray Norris. The photos and the recording were said to have been so traumatic that 17 minutes of the torture of Lynette Ledford's would cause most people in the courtroom to shed several tears, as well as shock and horror at what these two men had been capable of doing. It was nearly inhuman what they perpetrated against these women. Lawrence Whitaker would be found guilty of 26 counts. Murder, kidnapping, criminal conspiracy, rape, oral copulation, sodomy, and for owning a firearm as an ex-felon. Unlike Norris, Lawrence Bittaker was sentenced to death for his part in the murders and torture of five teenage girls. Bittaker would not be put to death, however, instead dying on death row of natural causes in 2019. The tape of Lynette Ledford's torturous screams is used now to desensitize investigators who are beginning their careers in law enforcement for the FBI. It is so visceral and graphic in nature that the recordings have never been released to the public. We can only hope that they never are. Some things should never be listened to. The remains of Andrea Hall and Lucinda Schaefer remained unfound, their families never getting to bury their daughters who were taken far too soon. We can only hope that in time their remains are finally identified and their families can get closure once and for all from the monsters known as the Toolbox Killers. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room.